Hello and welcome to another special episode of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, as well as a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast, as always, is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Hello, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. It's good to be back for this special episode. Now, our special episodes are like buses. You wait ages and then two come along at once. We hope you enjoyed our recent special interview with Mitch from Primetime Mitch uh, and our most recent regular episode uh, number 41, which is still in flight. Uh, Today, we have another special guest interview, a returning special guest, in fact, actor, producer, stunt performer and fight and stunt choreographer, Jamie B. Chambers. Welcome, Jamie. Hey, James and James. How are we doing? Very good. Good to have you on board again. Likewise. I love the podcast and I love being on. Very good. So it was almost exactly a year ago. Um, re- rescheduled a little because it was your birthday on Tuesday. Happy birthday for Tuesday, Jamie. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'm another step closer to 40. So uh, I appreciate, yeah. appreciate the reminder of yeah, that. I've got, I've got 40 uh, fading in my rear view mirror. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was almost exactly a year ago that you were on for a previous project that you were talking about, which was Morris Men. Uh, and at the time, Morris Men was about to have a premiere and then they were looking to get it out on uh, video on demand. Um, we've been following that, following the, the Morris Men official page, keeping an eye out for it to see when it's going to be released more widely. From what we've seen, it's it's kind of had some more showings at festivals, but I haven't seen it available to watch on VOD or anything yet. Have you got any updates on what's happening with Morris Men? Yeah, so uh, funny enough, I uh, I was with Don Morgan, the uh, lead producer, on a different project uh, a couple of weeks ago. He's doing like a Biker Grove style project at the moment, which is All right. at the uh, sort of 13 to 20 audience all right um so i'm on that and this time i'm not playing a very positive character but uh, <laughs> i'll get back to that in, in terms of morris men um it's going through a little bit of production hell right now um there's there's a lot of post-production so the premiere worked and the premiere was great and it was fantastic to get everyone together and sort of a, um see a final piece but in terms of the overall story and the final product I think the producers um, are deciding to change the narrative somewhat so that it's uh, um, it reaches a wider audience and tells a more succinct story. So, um, yeah, it, it's quite a funny one that it has a premiere and then it goes back into production. So. Yeah, well, it, it's funny how things go. I mean, I, I, we mentioned on the, on the last uh, episode we did with you, Jamie, that James and I write scripts and, you know, more as a hobby than anything. We haven't got Hollywood beaten down our door just yet, but... You, we put things up for for review and everything, and we we recently did a script together, which uh, we put up on the uh, the blacklist, that site they host it in America. And the only reason yeah. I did that was we we'd done several drafts and gone back and forth, but it really was just a first draft or an early draft. But I wanted those script readers to see it and and tell me if it if it stood up, if if the bones were in the right place. And when they came back and said, "Yeah, this works, but there's too many subplots and the dialogue needs a polish," I just thought, "What?" Well, well, that's great. I can do that. And I knew exactly how to focus my rewrite. But I guess if you're just trying to hurry up and get writing and, you know, films like, you know, f- films, people people are tweaking films right up until they get their release, aren't they? So there's always changes. After, oh, well, after I've, I've been on films that we are tweaking the script as we go. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, back, back uh, not, not to drop too big a name, but back on Star Wars, um, we were getting different colour scripts pretty much on a daily basis. So, yeah. um, no, in terms of that, but uh, I have no doubt that Hollywood will be beating down your door soon enough. Um, <laughs> I and, hope uh, so. our, 
I'll, I'll be first on the casting list to yeah, get, well, yeah. a, get a get an audition with you guys. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you would definitely, we'll definitely give you, a, we'll give give you a buzz first, Jamie. Um, oh, that, that now that is um, something to look forward to. <laughs> So yeah, it's, it's interesting about uh, Morris Man. We'll, we'll get to your, your, the project that you're talking about soon, I promise. But I was, I was interested in Morris Man because cause when, we, when we were following the page, there was an update that's saying we're very disappointed or you know we're very disheartened that you know we've only had our premiere and some festival screenings, and yet we've got hundreds of one out of ten ratings on uh, uh, IMDb. People are obviously being malicious who haven't even seen the film and all that sort of thing. And people were going, you know, try and count, I'm going to try and help IMDb do something, but try and counteract it, you know, because otherwise it looks like a one out of 10 film and no one's even seen it yet. So, you know, people were saying, oh, I'll, I'll help. But I think what happened was someone on the production team managed to get IMDb to re- re- remove the obvious malicious um, uh, reviews. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and now Morris Men is eight out of 10 on IMDb. It's it's if, an if, interesting if, if, if one. You, if you keep going, you're going to be the IMDb top fifty before you've actually like been properly released. <laughs> I, I mean, um, I I I don't put a huge amount of weight in reviews that just sort of are like user led and aren't verified. Um, yeah. So I don't worry too much. Um, I mean, I personally, I think the story is stronger than the end product, but I I enjoyed the work that went into it. I think is the best way to put it. Um, yeah, we 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 certainly, in terms of a production, had ideas that we couldn't manifest in the time that we had, um, and I, I'm sure at some point it will come out about the issues with crew and other bits that will no doubt the production will release all that stuff at some point. Um, yeah. the the amazing drama that goes on on every film set. Yeah, but, I can um, imagine. Fr- from my perspective. Um, it's always wonderful when someone is so conceited to um, put negative reviews out for a project. Um, I mean, I, I'm always of the opinion, you know, if you haven't got anything nice to say, probably best just to leave it be. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I, I enjoyed Morris Men. It, it was a fun, fun little project. Um, but for, for me personally, it, it's allowed me to work with Don Morgan, who is doing some great stuff. Um, and in, in doing so, you know, I got to, choreograph a lot of fight sequences a lot of action stuff work with some great people and then um now it's uh it's something that i can go yeah that was that was a great thing to work on let's do the next one yeah very good and and speaking of next one i know you're very busy and you probably i'm sure you've done actually a couple (laughs) since morris men but the uh i have the film that you're here to talk about today was recently released for video on demand viewing on amazon and some other electronic platforms it's called i am rage um, tell us about that, Jamie, and your involvement in it. I was really lucky on this one. Um, so I was meant to be doing utility stunts on Iron Rage, and it was one of those where can you come up to Scotland and uh, basically just jump in when someone doesn't want to take a bump, you know, long, long and short of it. Um, and then a, a week before production, they went, um, oh, we didn't realise that you're an actor. I was like, okay, that's a backhanded compliment. I'll take it. Um <laughs> And um, essentially, they went, um, we'd like to give you the father role in this. And I already knew that uh, great actors, uh, Luke Aquilina and Derek Gibson, uh, are already cast in this. And I was like, you know, they're both pretty much the same age as me. In fact, I'm pretty sure yeah. Derek's older than me. Yeah. Um, and they went, no, no, it's fine. We'll, we'll talk you through the, the full story of it. Um, yeah. I don't know yeah, if but... you guys know, um, there's a... There's like a real world conspiracy about like adrenochrome blood yeah, yeah, in yeah. 
Yeah, and and like that. Paul Paul Rudd is like a um adre- adrenaline adrenochrome blood user. Yeah, that's and all what, that that's why he looks so young and all that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he looks younger now than when he first started out, to be That's honest. That's true, yeah, yeah. They, he's in um, Only Murders in the Building Season 3, and that is actually a subplot as why does he look so young. The, there you go. I mean, for, for my money, there's probably something going on there. Yeah. But so, so yeah, I, I sort of lucked out, and um, uh, <laughs> I was meant to be playing it um, Scottish originally, and then, um, so I got, I got to work on like a like thick Glaswegian accent and then um like a, a couple of days before they went oh actually we're gonna go with American um can you do Texan and I was like yeah sure no worries and then they went oh actually we're gonna like put it in the middle can you do like a Manc accent so um, my, my tongue <laughs> your, <laughs> my dialogue, your having... <laughs> dialect coach is having a nervous breakdown at this point oh massively and my tongue's having a hernia as well yeah, at the same yeah, time yeah. so um no I rock up and then they went oh actually we're, we're gonna go with a midwest American accent I'm like, yeah All right, awesome so I get there and um the, the cast is amazing uh you've got Hannah Bang Benz who is playing Erin and she's an awesome leading lady in this uh martial artist fantastic actor and did all her own stunts as well which is really amazing um and then I, I got to work quite closely with Luke Aquilina Derek Nelson and uh, Marta Svetek. Now, um, Marta is sort of well known for like Five Nights at Freddy's and stuff like that. Um, I did put my foot in it <laughs> with, with Marta, like sort of first day when we went, oh, the new Friday Night is Freddy. I wasn't a fan. And she went, yeah, I've always like three characters in that. And I was like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite good that her character is not supposed to like you very much in the film. Yeah, there, it's, it's yeah. easy to be convincing. Oh, I, I made that very palpable very quickly. <laughs> So you, actual, I mean, so when the, the the time between you actually settling on an accent that they wanted you to do and starting to film can't have been very long. Then are we talking just a couple of days? Three days. Wow. <laughs> wow. You just you really got to roll with the punches, haven't you? And we, we were quite lucky because we we had um, literally rolled with the punches in that in in that sense. Like uh, we had Chris Torres who came over from the US and he's a fantastic stunt coordinator, and so that that was great and. Uh, David Keith, the director, he had a very sort of like succinct to the point vision of what he wanted to do. Um, so that really did help because it was like, right, we can just fall into this and like sort of get on with it. And for the most part, we were, we were filming quite chronologically, um, not for the whole the whole time, but for quite a lot of it. Um, so that helped a lot in terms of a, a really sort of fun film and then, you know, working with fun people at the same time. And when I watched the end product, I was like, oh, my God this is actually really, really good. And for a wrong turn style horror film, like that doesn't normally happen. Um, you sort of go, ah, that's okay. But um, John Schweigart, the uh, cinematographer, has absolutely nailed it. And I, I was actually just so impressed. And I know it, it sort of sounds like I'm obliged to say that, but genuinely, <laughs> I quite enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, sort of, sort of, We've got sort of Scottish heritage, so I did sort of spot some of the, the Scottish locations, um, yeah. and you can you know you can clearly see some 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 British number plates. But it was kind of it was kind of not set in the film said in in any sort of specific way exactly where you are. But there's quite a few like American characters in there. Was yes. that was that just intended to make it? And again, where well, they've abandoned Texan and they've abandoned sort of certain regional accents, was that just to make it a little bit more kind of? Um, universal in its kind of who, who, who I think play so. to. 
I think um, it made it sort of um, pan-Atlantic in that sense. Um, yeah. it, it certainly makes it more accessible, it's definitely with sort of VOD as well, and having a half-British, half-American crew, that helped. And the, 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 the funny thing about shooting in Scotland is the fact that we had four seasons every day without fail, like shooting outside and it's snowing one minute and then it's it's lovely sunshine and then it frosts over. Um, that is one hell of an experience when you're shooting in Scotland. Yeah, I mean, Nico Foster, who plays uh, Wilson, the hunter in the film, he is in a nothing but a sleeveless sort of waistcoat, <laughs> like hunting waistcoat for large parts of the film. He must have He must have been uncomfortable. That was a creative choice that I think he may have regretted very quickly. Um, Nico's a lovely guy, and like he'd worked out really hard for the role, um, and like you could tell that he was always going to wear that vest because like no one puts that much effort into biceps and doesn't like sort of put them on show. Um, I, I was just lucky that I got to basically wear four layers for the entire time I was out there. Yeah, like, yeah, you're. <laughs> I, I did think. Well, you're. you're so, yeah, he is fairly good, Scotland. Look at look at how many clothes he's wearing. Um, yeah. So, t- give us a bit of sort of background to like the the not, not no spoilers, but obviously the the premise of the of, of the film, the sort of the setup yeah. for the film. I'll I'll keep it spoiler free. So, um, the idea is is uh, very much like Wrong Turn for sort of a point of reference. We've got um, a family cult that um, trade in like adrenochrome fused blood. Um, so they. They coerce or bring in young people, torture them to a point that their adrenaline is really high, and then they harvest their blood and they sell it to the highest bidder. Um, that, that, that's sort of like the broad strokes of it. The idea with this is that um, they mess up by bringing in Erin, who has got quite a dark past. Um, and yeah, they, they lure her in and they don't yes. realise what they've what they've let themselves in for. Yeah, there's it a really fun sequence towards the end where I get to sort of uh, explain who Erin yeah. actually is, and sort of no spoilers on that one. But it, it's sort of fan, it's it's fascinating to sort of go, yeah, we've just brought in someone who could probably dismantle the entire operation, and like you can see from the action sequences in the trailer um like the amount of fun we got to have like once that reveal happens um and like like i say she's a fantastic leading lady she did a great job and the fact that um we're filming in scotland in freezing conditions and all they gave her was a vest is uh, (laughs) a bit harsh she didn't need to act pissed off either no no she absolutely nailed it hannah was absolutely fantastic from start to finish Yeah, so I, I watched I Am Rage sort of in preparation for the interview, Jamie, and I, I very much enjoyed it. The 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 kind of the the style of the film seemed to me to be there's the, you know the, the quite a lot of action sequences, obviously sort of fight scenes because they brought you in and they brought Luke Aqua is it Aquilina or Aquilina? Yeah, Aquilina. Yeah. Aquilina. Now he's a parkour guy, isn't he? So you're talking about two people. So you, you you both act in the film, but you're you're the stunts. I mean, so are you? I mean, I didn't see the join, but were you kind of being thrown off things, or you know, having to having to get you know bump into things a little bit for as a double or anything, or was it just coordinating the stunts that the other actors were doing? Both. Um, so Chris Torres took the lead in terms of the choreography, um, and I, me and Luke were basically just sort of um, happy to be involved in that sense. Um, but we we pretty much all of us ended up taking our own bumps. Um, the entire cast basically. We got together. We sat. We sat in this uh, little town, this little uh, sort of manor house in Inverness, and we went. Should we just do it ourselves? 
Um, and we, we sort of made a pact there and then that we were all going to take bumps for ourselves. Um, and it much harder for sort of Hannah and, and Tonya because there was nowhere to hide any pads. There was nowhere to sort of, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> there was no hiding, no hiding from the big hits. Um, and then you got, you got Marta who went in hard in terms of like her preparation and just being a fantastic performer herself. But, uh, yeah, me, me and Luke, um, we just sort of uh, were very much the uh, the stunt dogs bodies getting in, getting around, and getting as involved as possible, like uh, di- uh, digging stunt trenches uh, to hide some of the bigger mats for some of the bigger falls. Um, my my uh, my death at the end, no spoilers, um, <laughs> is, uh, is is a full on uh, full impact uh, death. Um, with one of the uh, actresses so that that in itself was a lot of fun to do and Luke just is such an incredible performer and his parkour and track um, skills came through a lot during like the filming process yeah I mean if I if I had a a sort of a slight disappointment knowing about everything you'd done on Morris Men it was that because of the plot of the film being more focused on sort of people being hunted through the woods there weren't as many opportunities for you or or in fact Luke for like full, long, extended, unarmed combat scenes, if you see what I mean, you know. Um, yeah, definitely. But, but you've got to do what the story requires, right? Yeah, I, I, it was quite nice because I, I did um I did the uh, special features that we would after after the shooting of the film with David, and he sort of in a roundabout way sort of said, "Look, we're really sorry, but we just don't have anything for you to do in this. Like the <laughs> the, the the character isn't that type of character, but." I was sort of humbled to have just been involved in that sort of that sort of film in the first place and to be trusted with a role that should have been given to someone in their fifties, sixties, but you know, to, to to play a character that is much older than would looks looks would show. I mean, don't get me wrong, I definitely look in my forties, but um like <laughs> I don't look in my sixties just yet. Yeah, the way um, the way it played to me was because of the whole kind of a you know, people harvesting blood and there's the fact that there's a photograph of the uh of the old family from like eighteen thirty eight that's kind of you in like early Victorian costume. I just kind of went, yeah, he looks young. It must be because of the blood that they're all drinking. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that mustache is terrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, that was a shock for me as well. We were doing a cast watch along, and then um, yeah, Hannah yeah, turned you don't over. Get to see that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we hadn't seen some of the post production, and um, question marks were raised about that prosthetic mustache. But um, it, it, it was certainly it, it made for a funny moment, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, because as well as the action, it's got a strong like horror theme, like you say. You go wrong turn as a reference point. There's a you know evil doings in a country house, which is a it's a classic setup. When they turn up and everyone's acting a bit weird at the start, you think, oh, you guys are in so much trouble. It's that it's that kind of movie. And I I was looking at sort of sort of initial user comments on the film, and people, the people who, who sort of loved it and the people who didn't like it, were all referencing exactly the same things as as to why. Because it's one of those films that's got a bit of an arched eyebrow about everything. I mean, it mentions adrenochrome levels in blood and everything, and we're drinking people's blood to become super strong. And everyone, you know, everyone, you know, gets a chance, you know, when they're killing someone to 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 throw in a quip because that's what you get in these movies. I thought it was very much in the tradition of of you know grindhouse exploitation cinema and even more realist stuff like Commando, which which it brought to mind a little bit. That you're kind of winking at the audience a little bit, aren't you? Everyone's here to have a good time, right? So Definitely. that you know. Um, 
Now, now, James, a lot of this kind of classic exploitation era is before your time, but you're a Tarantino <laughs> fan, so a lot of this will be quite familiar to you. Where, where do you think that kind of filmmaking sits in the film world these days? Um, yeah, that's a good question, and I was not ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it it's obviously not the most prominent genre, of course. like I think we're obviously in this kind of era of blockbusters and films that are trying to win Oscars, but I think... Yeah, blockbusters are a lot more sort of 12 rated now, aren't they? Yeah, um, but I think there's still like a kind of market for these kind of exploitation kind of films. Um, And it's good to see that they're still getting made. Like you say, Tarantino makes them. But I think, I wouldn't say when a Tarantino film comes out, the first thing that comes to mind is that, oh, it's another exploitation film, do you know what I mean? No, I just think it means that exploitation movies are a lot more in the DNA of your big name filmmakers these days. For the same reason that you know James Cameron did a, a Piranha sequel before he started doing his big movies, and everyone yeah. from Scorsese to Ron Howard did a Roger Corman movie back in the day. And you know, Jaws is an exploitation movie that just happens to have been made by an all-time great film director. I think that there was a time, like especially when the blockbusters of the eighties were like all like fifteen, eighteen rated, where the gap was much more narrow between like that kind of cinema and now. Now it's widened out a bit, and it just sits more independent film. I just, you know, just generation generationally, I just, you know, cur- curious for for what you thought of it, mate. Um, but in in this, you've got kind of three sort of big antagonists in the in the film, uh, haven't you, Jamie? And N- Nico Foster as Wilson, the kind of hunter client. I felt like he was channeling a little bit of Bennett in Commando. That's why it kind of like it sprang to mind a little bit because he's he's giving the scenery a, at least a bit of a nibble. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, um, which, it's unintentionally funny, and that actually works a lot better. Yeah, I, I uh, felt I felt that that was part of the enjoyment of the film is when your villains are kind of you know you know very colourful like that, and you're, you're especially given the challenges that you had like getting the, the the crew to settle on what they wanted you to do. You're doing some nice accent work with a. a I, I thought it was like a slightly arch villainous tone, which had shades of like Hugo Weaving in Matrix when he's going Mister Anderson. So you're. <laughs> You're you're doing things at a slightly different level to to Nico as Wilson, and obviously Marta as the main antagonist is the full-on dangerous psycho. And I, I did think that you all combined quite nicely. I just wondered if there was any, you know, did you need to kind of talk with the director and your and your and your fellow actors about you know making sure you're all in the same movie kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. Um, we we wanted Marta to be front and center because in in terms of those parallels, we wanted. Uh, Erin and Margaret to be um, having those arcs that follow through um, from sort of Erin sort of being the hidden away and sort of like um, just wants a, a weekend away with her new boyfriend and then you've got Marta who is the, the distant member of the family that is off being uh, entrepreneurial and I mean obviously don't get it wrong it's entrepreneurial in blood trade but yeah. still like um, so there, there was these sort of things where they're both sort of following a very similar arc and then sort of the reveals are quite similar at the same time um so we wanted to put that front and center and then with nico um as mr wilson um that sort of like allowed us to ham it up quite a lot and sort of go with that b-movie schlock horror style one-liners there is a little bit of bennett in there for sure um, and I, I thought it was also an opportunity to sort of give a nod to those American grindhouse films as well. Um, 
I think we shot um, the bit with uh, Ryan as the the guy that's being executed at the start. Uh, we, we shot like nine different versions of what Nico says when yeah. he when he finally sort of finishes him off. Yeah. Um, I think we we settled on um, that's going to need an open casket, which was from my perspective the only one that didn't work. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. But it, in saying that, that 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 again sort of added to the value of it quite a yeah, bit. Yeah. No, I mean, all, all of the sort of nine out of 10 user reviews that I saw for this were citing exactly what you were trying to do as as the enjoyment. I mean, this goes back to, um, you know, here's where everyone gets their dose of film geekdom, you know, f- from me, but um, the what what's believed to be the first film, or at least Hollywood film, in which a woman kills a man with a bare hands was Faster Pussycat Kill Kill by Ross Meyer, okay. which was part of a huge kind of tradition of this very sort of slightly camp exploitation cinema where you get a bit of nudity a lot of violence and a lot of kind of winking at the audience and the driving crowd would turn up and love it for all of the things that would you know the critics or the you know the, the the academy would turn their nose up at and i thought you gave people a really good dose of that in this movie definitely and it has to be tongue-in-cheek you have to yeah. enjoy it and i i i think a lot of the time you, um mark wood again like he he had so little to work with and had to sort of bounce off Marta and um, Erin very quickly. And it was another example of like, we've got to build this world and we've got to nod to the audience what's going on. And that suspension of disbelief is what makes it quite fun. Um, yeah, it's the same with like Jeepers Creepers, Wrong Turn, even the Saw franchise. It, mm-hmm. you, you've, you've got to wink to the audience and go, yeah, we know. Like, And, and that, that sort of is part of the fun of it. Yeah, definitely. It's And it's certainly... You know, I think it's certainly what people are citing as the things they like about the film. Um, I thought Hannah as the main character, she she had a lot of content to contend with as well, given that you have these three antagonists who were all kind of, you know, I mean, especially given that you're standing in, you and Marta and Nico are all kind of filling the screen, actually. She would have had a lot of contend with, you know, that, that there, sometimes your hero type can be overwhelmed, overwhelmed when you've got these like colourful villain characters. So I suppose it was fortunate that she's got her own kind of twisted edge to help her kind of stand out in the film, right? Yeah, uh, the fact that Hannah herself is an incredible performer definitely helped in a long way because she was on set every day. There was no down days for her at all. And then she's also got to um, match everyone beat for beat, uh, especially the two main fights with sort of um, Erin and Margaret and Erin and uh, Mr. Wilson. Those, Those fights, she's in there from minute one all the way through and... As you guys know, the Scottish weather just doesn't hold back. So it became very rough very quickly. And she also bounced off Derek a lot, um, both literally and also, you know, in terms of the film. And we we loved the sort of nod to the chestburster style, um, over-the-top action. That that, that was great fun. That that particular scene, which I don't want to spoil for, for the audience, but films like this... This film had the bits, like I said, you know, reference to Commando, because my favourite thing in, in Commando was Ray Dawn Chong, like saying things like, you guys eat far too much red meat, while like <laughs> Arnie and, and Bill Duke are kind of smashing up a motel room and all that stuff. But it's also got like the the over-the-top action moment where the whole audience is going to go, ah, ha, ha, good kill, because that is one of the things that people want from this movie. Um, and... Like I say, giving giving Hannah that level of kind of like color of her own, I think did help. Definitely, um, James. What, it, what your it, sorry? Go ahead, Jamie. 
No, no, no. Go, go, go for it, sorry, James. Sorry, sorry, I, James. I haven't had nearly enough Scottish accents so far. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. yeah you're, he's, he's recording you to do research for later. This is a Glasgow accent, <laughs> by the way, Jamie. Keep listening. Um, yeah, James, what are your thoughts on like heroes trying to avoid being upstaged? I mean, you know, what, what, what's the best way to do it? I mean, what came to mind for me about like the hero who has to fight to be upstaged was like Johnny Depp in um, Pirates of the Caribbean, who had to go kind of full hat stand because there were so many pirates giving it ah in, in the screen that he had to do something to kind of you know, not sort of disappear into the background. What are your thoughts on, you know, making the hero as colourful as the villains? I suppose it's it's hard to kind of notice in films, for me anyway, because obviously there's a lot of post-production and direction, but where I've noticed it most is things like stage. You know, you can just tell someone's hamming it up and, you know, trying to kind of impose themselves. But I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with the protagonist trying to, you know, add, add a layer later to be a bit more interesting because it's easier for the villain to kind of have that dynamic of yeah that's right you know they get they get to do the kind of wacky kind of crazy stuff that you know whereas the villain's kind of got to be that not sorry the villain the protagonist got to be that kind of good force i think it's what what's the right phrase for that it's like a it's not a protagonist it's not an antagonist it's sort of like a an in-between isn't it yeah so it, 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 Hero, it's not, it's not quite an anti-hero, but I know what you mean. It's anti-hero, f- yeah, that kind yeah, yeah. Of thing. But you know, it's like um, again, Com- Commando keeps coming back. But when Arnie says, you know, when I said I would kill you last, I lied and then drops the guy off the cliff. That's yeah. your hero. Do you know what I mean? And that's a cold-blooded, murderous thing to do. But the audience <laughs> wants that. The audience wants that from from the hero. I think. Um, I, I think that characteristics have to sort of follow through. But with villains and all that middle ground anti-hero you can throw away a lot of those characteristics and pick them up mm-hmm. very quickly um I, I think certainly like using commando and stuff like that as an example um like sort of being cold-blooded killer and then having a moral compass like you can pick it up and drop it same with logan like um you you, you in fact old man logan is a perfect example of that and i think they they sort of showed that he can be the Wolverine, but he's also like this essential living carer as well. Yeah. And you know, it, with with those characters, it's much easier with those characteristics to sort of pick them up and drop them down. Whereas if you are a protagonist, you've got to be sort of more sustained throughout. And I think Hannah definitely showed that she she had some key elements that she had to keep going. Um, sort of going back to the watch and stuff like that, and sort of like the heart the heart rate and that sort of stuff. Mm. Those those things really like sort of ramp up the tension um, yeah. but very subtly that it wasn't very on the nose I also thought like, like I say we've been talking about like how like a like an exploitation film that has to have its tongue in its cheek some of the time because that's you know, that's how you, you know, a film that was just purely about people being incredibly nasty to each other and then brutally killing each other wouldn't, you know, that's not fun, but you've got to find that level to make it fun. And did that really, you know, I think you, you fulfilled the brief for an exploitation film with that bit. Then the final fight, I, I was genuinely gripped by the final fight because it, it's like a, it's a knockdown drag out, pull each other through the mud. And I bet that mud was real because of where you filmed it. <laughs> You know, I can, I can attest to that. That was you know, very, very real. After a couple of minutes, you know, the martial arts isn't going to happen anymore. No one's going to be able to shape up for like a kick from the textbook or anything. And they're like, you know, really kind of genuinely look like a fight to the death. And how much, how much input? I know you're working with Chris Torres and Luke, but how much input did you get into that that big fight at the end? 
so luckily uh, where we were in digs we had like a big open space where we could sort of um, basically workshop all the fight sequences mm -hmm. so we we all had sort of um, adequate input in terms of what we felt the final fight should look like um, yeah. Marta had a very strong idea and it worked really well and Hannah had some key elements that she wanted to show throughout and then we sort of tried to make it work in terms of right what works logically what works for camera and then how do we escalate the fight so the uh, between the sort of five of us we sort of workshopped it into a point where the final fight like you say it sort of it's descending in quality but ascending in risk and sort of yeah. that jeopardy um you, you sort of hit the nail on the head and also the fact that it was tipping it down with rain and it was freezing cold definitely definitely didn't help on that day yeah i was i was thinking that in situations like this because you were brought in you know predominantly for stunts in the first instance of this film and i was thinking you must have quite a few experiences when you're on films where you're your responsibility is to be, you know, making the martial arts look convincing and uh, coordinating fights. And I know a lot of actors get trained in that sort of thing because it's just such a big, you know, part of the job now. You know, you're talking about like the, you know, uh, J uh, Matt Damon learning Krav Maga for, for the Bourne films and stuff like that. But you've, you've, you've obviously got to come in and kind of, you know, take something which is your specialist subject and get performers with a range of experiences to kind of, you know, like, take part in these kind of scenes. It reminded me a bit of how, like, Scott Adkins, he gets to showcase his own fighting and acting when he's in the lead in his films, you know, like One Shot and Ninja and stuff like that. But in other productions like John Wick 4, he might, you know, he only maybe has one scene. He's probably doing a lot in the background, but he's got only got one scene of his own and he's combining with actors that aren't necessarily at his level. You know, even Keanu. I mean, have you seen John Wick 4? I have. Um, it was. It was one of those where it was everything I wanted it to be. That, um, I, I mean, just, that that fight scene with Scott Atkins in a fat suit is outstanding. I love it. I um, love it. What's your experience of of like being in situations like that where you know you've got to you've got to coordinate these fights and I you know the bigger the fight, the more complex the fight, the bigger the range of like fighting experience and type of actor you've got to work with. What, what what's that like when you're kind of working up those fights for the film? I sort of take it back to things like um, watching Tony Jaa and. Uh, Jackie Chan and and sort of even Donnie Yen and the, the idea is is you have to take what you're good at as the foundation first and then you have to build from there um, and what I think uh, certainly in th this project was great is that everyone brought their own skill set with them um, uh, Hannah is a legit martial artist as is Marta um, and Luke is just an all-round performer. Um, I say just, but I mean just as in he is quite literally an all-round performer. And that was a huge part of it because everyone brought their own foundation to build from, um, which makes it really easy because everyone is then looking, right, well, I throw a punch this way and this is how it will work and this is how we can sort of uh, tidy it up or sort of make it uglier for film. And those sort of things are like the building blocks for any sort of choreography when you're doing that because it, it allows you to sort of lean into their specialism a little bit and then build around that um and especially with hannah and marta that was the perfect combination and sort of like the perfect storm when it came to that and like i, I was quite lucky in terms of um i worked with scott on one shot and his fight with lee and then with uh with lee charles and then with jess laudan both fights you can see how jess being a brawler and very much being um 
uh, about groundwork and throws that sort of comes out in that final fight um whereas with lee a big huge hulking man big punches slams into walls and scott is sort of able to take those different styles and make them blend into like a really sort of coherent logical fight sequence and um we, we it's quite lucky on the day we were we, we were watching this fight with uh scott and jess and <laughs> The, the the fight they actually use um, the blade actually got knocked further away than what we what we'd seen in rehearsals and so Jess literally picks up Scott and slams him on the ground and he does this three so or four that times. so that he can be nearer the knife <laughs> yeah and it stayed in the, it stayed in the final edit and yeah. um, J- I think James Nunn um, and Ben Jacks have looked at that and gone nope that works that's real keep it yeah, yeah. and I think that's a lot of the time that's what you miss in these action sequences is there has to be a realism as well even if you're sort of suspending raw. that disbelief it has to be raw yeah um Given your your background in in stunt coordinating uh, for films, I think you would be fascinated by a very old film called uh, Jailbait, directed by Edward D. Wood. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ed Ed Wood. I have heard of it. Yeah, Ed Ed Wood directed Plan 9 from Outer Space and was widely regarded as the worst uh, film director of all time. Yeah, I've watched the... uh, Is it Johnny Depp? Yeah, yeah. Now, my dad and I I had the pleasure of going to see a double... Uh, a double feature of, of old Ed Wood films, the actual films themselves. And in Jailbait... It's about a teenager going off the rails. It's one of those classic 50s cautionary tales, but done in his inimitable, incompetent style. <laughs> and, and the final scene involves uh, a character being shot uh, near a swimming pool. And right. It's, and it's quite obvious that the intention of the final scene is that they're supposed to get shot, you know, clutch their abdomen, the music gets emotional and swells up, and they fall in the pool. And in the final cut of the film, the bit that we, the audience, got to see, they didn't do a second take when this happened, but the actor fell over but just landed on the ground or the, the, the paving beside the pool. <laughs> and you can actually see them look up, look to some point past the camera, presumably the director, and then roll three or four times and then flop into the pool. No! And they roll credits, so it's the last thing you see and remember from the film. Oh, I, I, I always thought with honestly, the it's films, a work of absolute genius. It, honestly, you can't, you cannot underestimate. The other film we saw that day was Bride of the Monster, and that involves uh, a giant squid attacking people. I know uh, Bride of the Monster. Yeah. Now they broke into the film studio to to steal a giant squid. It was the giant squid from Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, and they broke into a studio, a, a proper Hollywood studio, to get that squid and use it for their film with Bella Lugosi. Golden yep. Hill, which was quite bad. They forgot. Well, yeah, because Be- Bella was on his last leg. He was point. very much so, and but they forgot to steal the motor that works the um the the octopus. <laughs> so in the film, you can see Bella Lugosi moving the octopus's arms around, helping it to attack. Oh, him. I love it! It's like that um that fight sequence from Star Trek with Kirk and the um. Uh, the the reptile creature where yeah. the the guy the, the guy he's fighting can't see because he's in a latex mask so yeah, yeah. Shat, Shatner's got to do all the fight moves for him. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> no, I'm I'm gonna have to because I, I I do love how like it's a guilty pleasure watching terrible films. And oh, those are Ed, two absolute absolute. Edward is classics. one. I mean, it happened because I watched the the Johnny Depp film, obviously, um, and then I was like, no, it, there must be more to this. Because, I mean, Bella Lugosi is one of the greats, and the fact that he found himself working with, like, Edward and stuff like that is quite incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Edward, I think if you take the way it's 
portrayed in the film, and there's always a bit of poetic license. It's just someone who loved making films. He just wasn't any good at it. Yes, but it, but, he did, but God bless him, he didn't let that stop him. <laughs> I think. I think. I mean, that, someone, that has never some, changed, does it? No, as someone who's put as much work in as you have into coordinating like elaborate stunts, I think you would especially love the ending of Jailbait. You have to. See oh, it. I, I, I would love that. I mean, especially in the day and age where they they would have had limited amount of film to shoot on as well, and it would have to been get it done and get out. That, that's that's hilarious. So, so having a sneaky peek through your uh, IMDb I've noticed Jamie you're credited as a stunt coordinator on a film called Niat which appears yep. to be a Bollywood film which although it's shot in England has an Indian story and cast is I that, loved is, it is that is that out yet yep it's out on I think it had a cinema release and I think it's out on streaming now oh, um, good. It, it, so Niat roughly translates to motive um, and it's, it's so that's essentially it's kind, a, of, kind, of, it. kind of an Agatha Christie thing right very much so, very much so. Um, it's a whodunit in a Scottish, um, again, going back to Scotland. Um, it's actually, uh, it's filmed in the castle uh, slash, I mean, it is, a, it is a castle, let's put it that way. But it's filmed in the castle that was made from money from paperclips. And that's, All right. no, that's no joke. That's literally the guy made his fortune um, selling paperclips. And, and wanted a castle. He wanted to be and a, wanted a castle. Manor. Yeah, yeah. Exactly that. But um, yeah, so I, I got to work with Ram Kapoor, who is genuinely amazing, uh, such a lovely guy, and uh, Vidya Balan. Um, and the idea is, is essentially, they all did it um, through one form or another. Um, and I got brought in, uh, got given a 120-page script and went, where are all the stunts? I went, here, 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 here. And then they were like, all right, we also want to throw someone off a cliff. I was like... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so you, you, you had a lot to do then. I loved it. Uh, yeah, loads to do. Um, I end up being the stunt driver on it as well, um, which is always a ridiculous amount of fun. Um, got to drive some fantastically expensive cars. Um, but on top of it, like we, we got to be really creative with the... Um, the it, It's all told in retrospect. So much like the Agatha Christie style, um, you find out who did it halfway through and then the build-up to the crime... So it's a lot of fun and really well put together. Um, Anu Menon was great as director. Um, like she, she had a very sort of a strict idea of how she was going to get a lot of the ideas across, and then it it ends up being this ridiculous like who did it? Well, everyone did it <laughs> through one form or another, and it's got a little bit of Wes Anderson about it as well. Like it, it, it is it becomes a little bit of a farce, which I absolutely love, and it's got some really hilarious moments. Oh, very good. It sounds like a, a real change of pace for you. It was, definitely, um, because I'm used to going in and some, the director saying to me, we want the most brutal, savage fight sequence, and we want to see the guy's face like slide across, and like you want to throw him over this banister. And then coming to this one, I went, no, no, this is intricate. This is like, uh, we, we've got to be really subtle with this. Yeah, I was like, yeah. okay, yeah, this is a challenge. This will be fun. And yeah, and, and from from my perspective, the best way to learn and the best way to develop is being taken out of your comfort zone completely. Mm, yeah. And that for me, it was great because I'm, I'm working with an ensemble cast. Um, so we've got some really fantastic people like um, Dinesh Razvi and uh, Shahana Goswami who have never done any sort of uh, violence or anything like that before. But uh, at one point, one of them is gassed and put in like a secret compartment. You know, like the... Uh, 
the old school um, secret passageways. Oh, right. Never yeah. done it. Never done it before. Never fallen over before. Um, and I was like, right, I'm teaching this actress and this actor how to fall over, and this is going to take some time, and this in front of the whole crew. So that was again like a completely different um, process. Yeah. And on top of that. Yeah, you know, I get to work with Rahul Bose and Nikki Walia. Uh, they they were all fantastic and just just genuinely fun people to work with. Yeah, and I, now James, you're a big fan of like the Knives Out films, Knives Out and Glass Onion. But uh, I mean, a a, a a Bollywood version of an Agatha Christie that that's a whole new level, isn't it? Apologies if you can hear an arsehole spaniel in the background barking at someone having the audacity to post something through my letterbox. No, that's all right. Um, Yes, I do. I do love Knives Out and Glass Onion, and a Bollywood twist sounds amazing. Um, just adds a totally different layer to. A, I mean, I th- I thought Knives Out and Glass Onion were a kind of totally different spin on the Agatha Christie whodunits, but that just sounds absolutely not bonkers, but just lively. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's fun that people keep coming up with new spins on it. Really. Yeah, I like the fact that with Knives Out. Um... You, you've got the Agatha Christie style, but then you've got M. Night Shyamalan style twists going on as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, and and they Glass sort, Onion they sort know, of free it them, to another level. They sort of free themselves up to say, actually, any twist, you know, we, you, you, the, you, the craziest twist you can think of, we will find a way to make it work, right? Exactly that. Uh, I, I think um, with the first one, uh, we everyone had like a vague idea of how it was going to end by about the 30-minute mark, yeah. and they managed to sort of throw like sort of spin it on its head yeah yeah definitely but um with glass with glass onion you you know you're still guessing right up until the very end yeah definitely with all the things that you're talking about jamie it sounds like that you're uh you know even even through covid and various other upheavals you've you've managing uh, to keep very busy with your various acting and, and production credits but how much harder has it been lately say like the past three years with everything that's going on well um covid was no exception for anyone in terms of like uh making life harder um i had to um broaden my horizons somewhat um i i had a a great motion capture company sent me a mocap suit and I did a load of motion capture stuff for them from a home studio. Um, but then on top of that, I've been doing a lot of presenting work. I've, I've just started uh, presenting for on track GP um, doing their formula one um, previews and their previews and their watch along shows. But um, for, for me, like every day is a different day uh, in terms of like being on a different film set, being on a different um, production. And I, I consider myself, incredibly lucky and um like uh grateful for the fact that we are I'm, I'm in quite a blessed position to be working on films and working in tv like every day uh th- this week for example um i've just finished playing a role in a film called unseen scars which is about uh ptsd in army and marine veterans and how going through their everyday lives is brutally affected by PTSD. And that, that was a sort of big one for me because it's like a, in the age of mental health and, you know, um, talking about those sort of issues, that, that was huge to be a part of that. So like, I was really humbled to be involved. And then um, on Tuesday, I was doing an advert for Walkers. And then Wednesday, I was presenting up at the NEC. And then Thursday, I was doing a preview for the Qatar Grand Prix. So it, it's it's been a pretty 
mad six months, really. Yeah, you just need to be... I think your versatility is helping you, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I consider myself a jack-of-all-trades and then a master of absolutely nothing. But it, it's, it's one of those where, like... Um, it's not that I get bored quickly, but I I do like to sort of try my hand at everything. Um, like uh, I'm I'm doing some performance capture for a PlayStation Five game coming up pretty soon. It's going to be a mix of um, GTA and Left 4 Dead, so I'm I'm very excited to be doing that and getting in the motion capture studio to do that. Um, so that's going to be really exciting. Yeah, James, you're quite a big gamer, aren't you? I think the you, you're probably a good judge of what goes into like the motion motion capture and other like effects for some of these big games these days. It doesn't even have to be a big game these days. That's the best thing about it. Some of the best games I've played recently didn't have a massive absurd budget or take absolutely centuries to make. It's amazing what they can do. I think the best example is um, the Plague games. Have you heard of them, Jamie? I know you have. Yeah, I love them. They're great. They're they're set in like the thirteen hundreds, and basically you are a young girl with a younger brother trying to navigate like northern France during the plague, and your brother's got this ability to kind of control rats, and it's like a puzzle game, and it's a beautiful game, even though it's swarmed by rats, and it's by a really minor small studio. Because that's um, uh, what is it? It's uh, a sobo, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've I played a few of their games and it's, it's, they're just great fun just to sort of get involved and problem solve. I mean, I'll put my hands up. My my favourite game still at the moment is the Hitman new trilogy. It's one of my favourite games of all time now. Yeah, it's interesting because we, we've a, a fellow Sunderland fan of ours um, and a, a American actor, just because sometimes Americans sort of come and adopt an English <laughs> football team. And this guy had had the misfortune to to pick Sunderland when you know back when we in the Premier League, and he's been on a real roller coaster with us. Hold on, we are doing quite well at the moment. I want you to retract that. Uh, uh, don't don't jinx Sunderland now. It's taken this long for them to recover. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I want it redacted. I, want no, it redacted. I, 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 I take it back. I do apologise. It's good now. It was tough for a couple of years, but uh, Jesse. I mean, the... tough tough is an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was truly horrendous for Sunderland yeah. for a yeah, while. Yeah. But but sticking with that through and through, even though he's from you know living in California and working as an actor in America, is a guy called Jesse Birch, and right, he's, yeah. he's got so many like acting credits, like voice credits on games. You've almost certainly heard his voice on some of your favourite games. Definitely. And and that's it's such a small world when it comes to um, the, be, being a voice artist as well as an actor. And like uh, I mean, it was it was gutting to lose Nolan North this year um like he's such an iconic voice actor and there's no doubt that i've heard jesse in many games that i've played yeah i mean just north die yes wow yeah really really gutting um and mark hamill has also retired his joker as well do you mean do you mean kevin conroy because i I might be getting those confused yeah nolan north is thankfully still alive no, the North is still alive. Sorry, Kevin Conroy. I apologise. Yeah, yeah, Kevin Con- losing Kevin Conroy. Um, it, it, it's just that's absolutely. It, it was savage. Um, and Mark Hamill has uh, obviously retired the Joker as well. Um, well, his Joker. So I mean, voice acting like they are so iconic for so many characters. It's it's hard if someone then is no longer with us and those around them. It's sort of end of an era in that sense. Yeah, if you go to like the credits for like voice actors, they have 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds yes. of credits just because they I think there's another one his name's Fred Tataschiori yeah who has done love Fred anything and everything he played Samuel L. Jackson in Team America so you've definitely heard him dad yeah yeah but he wrote his <laughs> filmography listen to this actor 933 wow, projects wow that's just so many voice he credits right everything he's in Nickelodeon stuff he's probably been in Call of Duty he's on Marvel things he's in Archer he's in everything they just do everything and like uh, jamie says it is just a small world because these people are so reliable at doing a good job yeah and they're so versatile as well i mean i mean for fred for example like uh just off the top of my head i can think of like uh megatron um he's also done uh uh yosemite sam like the the just the the ridiculous range that he can do is absolutely mad um and it's sort of like for, for actors like me where like I, I do voices and I do impressions and then you sort of look at these guys and go, yeah, not to that level. Like, <laughs> well, Speaking of Nolan North, he does um, one of the Call of Duty characters. He plays yes. um, Edward Richthofen, who's a crazy former Nazi scientist who experiments on zombies and then he plays desmond miles in the assassin's creed games and that's two totally different voices isn't it? like i say the, the versatility is it's incredible impressive. very good so including video games and anything else you might be working on in the future jamie what's next for you what's coming up I, i'm really excited about a few things actually um so i've got a proof of concept coming out called neon ballerina uh and that is blade runner meets terminator um the idea being that We've got a oligarch type character who runs this dystopian future city and oversees everything. And then we've got a time traveling assassin that goes back to assassinate him. Uh, the idea being that he can buy anything, he can afford anything, and he pays for three dances with the most exclusive ballerina. Like it costs more money than cents. Um, turns out that she's an assassin. And the idea for the proof of concept is that we leave it that she's gone back in time to perform this assassination end of but the film is going to be that both of them travel back and forward in time to stop each other's deaths um so it's kind of like blade runner and time cop but goes back before he's dead and then goes back before she travels back and so on and so on so that just in terms of concept it's a high concept it's going to be loads of fun to do that um, so I'm really excited about that one. And uh, something more grounded that's coming out. I've just finished playing Butch Aikman in Shamrock's, uh, Shamrock Spitfire, which is about the World War II uh, Spitfire squadron towards the end of the Second World War. Um, and some of the amazing pilots that uh, were in the Battle of Britain and um, flew over Malta and places like that. So just just like that from those two films i've got some really fun stuff coming up oh interesting that that's pr a pretty broad range i mean i saw neon ballerina actually on on there as a short and that explains a lot that you, you film it as a short because if someone likes the idea you get the you get the traction to make the the full-length film that, that that they have in mind yeah it's an incredibly expensive calling card. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the the other stuff that I'm doing, um, I'm I'm going to be going out to the US uh, to play a character called Charlie Phillips in Forsaken Past, which is going to be a prequel to another film that we're doing. And Forsaken Past is going to be basically be uh, Sons of Anarchy meets the A Team. Oh, um, very good. So a biker gang, but instead of 
entrenched in crime they're the opposite and they go around solving local problems but as a biker gang um i and i i don't need an american accent for that one i'm i'm going out as a, a, a lovable cockney like a man at arms uh Kind of like a mad, uh, mad dog Murdoch. In oh, that excellent! Sense. Well, okay. Murdoch, <laughs> Murdoch is the part you want to play out of those four, isn't it? Oh, hundred percent. There's so much, there's so much you can do with those sort of characters that are completely off the wall. Um, and yes, I'm really excited about them. Um, and obviously, to get back in the volume for uh, Dark Mean City and start playing characters for a PS5 game. Very good. And as you mentioned last time, you can't say much about it, but you are you are attached to a Marvel project, so we'll keep watching the skies for that, I guess. Yeah, I keep getting messages and screenshots from people saying, is that you? And I'm like, yeah. I, I can't say anything. Like, <laughs> I, I, I worked it out. It, there's a guy in Secret Invasion who looks a bit like you, and that's why when I saw that trouble, it's Jamie, that's the Marvel. The Marvel project he was talking about was bloody Secret Invasion. And then I kind of trolled through the cast and went, oh, it's this other guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Me. He messaged me saying, oh, yeah, he was in Secret Invasion. I went, oh, was he? And then scratched that. No, he wasn't. And I went, thank fuck, because Secret Invasion was shite and I didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad you guys don't want to talk about it, because in all honesty, um, I'm, a, I'm a huge comic book nerd. And, I mean, the soundproofing in my home studio is actually all the comics from October 1987. Um, like, oh, wow. I've used that. Wow. So, like, you name it, G.I. Joe, Punisher, Captain America, Watchmen, like, all of them. But Secret Invasion was one of those storylines that I genuinely love. Like, it, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And to watch a, to watch a company and a, a brand sort of misuse an entire decade-long story is just gutting to see. The warning signs were there a little bit with the Captain Marvel film because they kind of threw away the Skrull storyline in that Skrulls film. Hugely. Well. Yeah, I think... There were so many opportunities to bring in the Fantastic Four um, with the whole scroll story anyway. Um, I mean, we've already missed... I mean, this, this is massive geek territory now, but like we've we've missed the No More Mutants idea, which could have unified... Now that, they've gone, now that Disney just goes and buys every studio, like they don't have to worry about buying content back. We, we missed No More Mutants. We've missed um, Secret Invasion. We're, Secret Wars is going to be done badly. Um there's so many things where even love and thunder like we've got to a point now where we're disappointing yeah we're we're condensing 10 years of storyline into two and a half hours yeah it's a shame isn't it yeah definitely and it's also another example of marvel taking a villain that could last three or four films and getting rid of them almost immediately yeah well hopefully they they've learned their lesson by the time the project you're working on uh, either that or they sell marvel off to someone else (laughs) who who knows I, i i that would be interesting. That would be that would be big news. Well, yeah, I, I did see a wicked rumor going around that Apple are in the market to buy Marvel. Well, that would be interesting. Yeah, wow. but that is that is a that's an expensive transaction. It is. Um, I, I I think Disney are treating a lot of their assets kind of like chickens ready for like a Sunday roast. It's yeah. or turkeys for Christmas. Like they are plumping them up as much as possible. You've only got to look at Star Wars and sort of go, mm. right, we're we're gonna we're gonna become a content farm for as many projects as possible and then we're just gonna sell it on. Mm. And uh, make back several billion of what they've spent. <laughs> I was thinking ten billion. Just think of the cash cow that Marvel is like yeah, yeah. Uh, if 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 they reboot it the way the rumors are going at the moment, then 
I can definitely see them sort of making that as like a high-end asset acquisition. Yeah. But that that that's going to be a thing where you you're going to have to rewrite or reboot a lot of stuff to make that work. Yeah, and they have to make sort of unify the different properties that got sold off to different studios back in the day. I mean, buying, well, I think they're buying, only missing a couple now, aren't they? Is it Sony? It must be. It's just Sony now, isn't it? Spider-Man is still at Sony. Yeah. Well, Spider Spider-Man is. It sounds like like a broken family. Spider-Man is like dual ownership, but mm. none of Spider-Man's villains are. Yeah, that's why Venom's a completely separate thing, right? Yeah, exactly that. Uh, Venom, Vulture, uh, th- those sort of like a. Uh, Iconic characters that still can't use them. Mm, crazy. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Venom in the Tom Spider-Man? Hardy was Tom Hardy was in the end sequence, wasn't he? Yeah. The Have you seen the newest Spider-Man, Dad? Yes. No. No way home. Yeah. 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 He's in a so, he's in a cutscene at the end, isn't he? But but Venom technically isn't. It's right, only Eddie so Brock. So they got around it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So weird. It, it, it's a weird thing where with I mean, I'm sure. Disney at some point will just go. We'll, we'll just buy Sony and and just like. <laughs> but it, it, you've only got to look at 21st Century Fox and um, sort of the subsidiaries that have been sort of uh, encompassed into Disney now and go. Well, this is purely to cash cow and purely to um, content farm. Yeah, and to to, f- to fill out what they can offer on Disney Plus, right? Well, uh, hugely, and especially with the writers' strike and the. SAG strike sort of dragging on it's been a case of well they're going to back catalogue as much as they can because there's going to be in six months time a massive content lack yeah they're digging themselves in for the long haul aren't they I mean, I, I can sort of talk from both sides of the fence. Like, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure several studios own my likeness at this point. Um, yeah. I, I've been scanned for so many different things, um, but not not in a bad way because I'm I'm all about the the process. But I think we have to protect talent to a greater or lesser extent because at some point, whether you try and replace an actor with AI or a voice with AI, it's never going to be as truly creatively rich as using the talent in the first place. Yeah. Well, and, so, and so that's, that's why you got the pro, the biggest problem with the writer's strike. I mean, the problem with the actor's strike is they don't want to pay anybody for their likeness or, or, or give the actor any creative in, input into the use of their likeness. And it's like, well, they don't seem to understand that it's the human beings with the ideas that, that make things happen. But with the writer's strike, the biggest danger to writers is that the studios would be quite happy to just have an AI churning out copies of films that have been done before. 100%. Um, You've only got to look at um, uh, ChatGPT Pro or Claude AI, and you can can say, write me a script in this style, and you can feed it three different scripts, and then it will go, now rewrite Total Recall, or um, give give me Starship Troopers for a 21st century audience, and and it will do it. And a couple of Netflix originals look like that's exactly how they wrote the film. It does look that way, and it does it does look like a beat for beat rehashing of because uh, I know last time I was on um, we sort of discussed like uh, classics, hidden gems, and remakes, and yeah. I sort of I sort of had a gripe about how remakes are very much um, like a soulless parody. Um, yeah. There's no heart to them, and Disney are a perfect example of that now with Snow White um, and oh. the Little Little Mermaid. It, it's it's not the fun 
sort of uh, family-friendly content that we expect from Disney. No, it's just it's just because they figure if they they can't re-release a film from 1989 and expect to make that much money, but what they can do is go, let's take a film you made in 1989 and just quickly chuck out another version of it because it will make a few hundred million. Um, yeah, and but that's the problem. It's only a few hundred million. When you think Fast and Furious 10 just made a billion dollars. Yeah. Fucking hell. Who's going to see that fucking film? That really annoys me. It's, it's the um, same James, film. James, James I, I will say this right now. It was me at least <laughs> twice. <laughs> <sighs> it's my guilty pleasure. I love the Fast and Furious franchise with a passion. Family. Oh, yeah, well... That, Exactly that, because it is a absolutely mindless exploration into action films for two and a half hours. Yeah. I think, to kind of go back to the Disney point, I think Disney's coming to an end, and I'll tell you why. My missus proved this to me. She was so excited for that Little Mermaid film, and I went, mm. it's going to be shit. Don't watch it's it. Gonna it's going to be bad. Gonna be sh-. I said that, it's going to be shit. She went, no, I love the Little Mermaid. And I went, the original one wasn't that great, and this one's going to be shit. She went, no, what? four minutes she lasted, guys. And she was she turned off. She's like, yeah, yeah. shit. And exactly the element, that, because the nostalgia element will not last. And it doesn't look right. I've seen, You can see from the trailer that it doesn't look right. The way they photographed it is not like also, vibrant. Also, what the hell did fun. they do to Flounder? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some, some of the characters, they, they become like a... Have you seen that AI um, horror filter? No. no, like it make it makes a twenty second horror video out of a picture, and it just looks like someone's just gone down the well of like horror versions of Sebastian and Flounder, and just gone. Yeah, it yep, look that's nice. perfect. Let's go with that. It doesn't look nice. To kind of carry on, have you guys seen Elemental? I haven't yet. Yes, I have. Yeah. Did what did you think of it? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Actually, you really enjoy because we we love Pixar. My partner and I love Pixar, and we thought. Let's put this on, and we just didn't get on with it. I think the I, train I, might have come I'm not going to. I'm not going to say it's a Pixar great by any yeah. stretch, um, but in the same vein as uh, is it going red and um, inside out, I didn't have a problem with it. I th- I think the problem Disney's got, like like you were saying, Jamie, is that they uh, their films still cost as much to make as they used to, but they're not taking as much at the box office as they used to. Definitely. They've not got the soul, you know, like yes. when you think of Toy Story, that touches every every person in the world's soul because everyone at some point had a toy and they thought this toy came to life. Whereas Elemental fundamentally doesn't fucking work like as a concept. No, because they're, they're <laughs> trying to do Inside Out, but just on a bigger scale. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think... it, it, it is disappointing. It's, it's not... I think, James, you, you sort of hit the nail on the head where they are not the, the Pixar films that we had growing up they are not a toy story they are not a warly um and they there's no heart to them mm. they're just they you know look i nothing i mean we, we did a we did a big conversation about the golden age of animation uh jamie which where james and i basically went from you can either pick like the early 90s or or, or the mid 90s when pixar arrives and say so that was the start of, of a new yes. golden age of animation and we basically argued that, that 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 golden age of animation is is now over, and nothing lasts forever. And that, that it could just be as simple as that. You know, it's like there was a great golden era of disaster movies. There was a great golden era of biblical epics, and so on. Nothing lasts forever, you know. Yeah, I, I think so. In, in in terms of content levels and stuff like that, the the problem we've got is that 
whereas eras before, like the 80s action movie with your Stallones and your Schwarzeneggers and your JCVDs, and then your Disney animation of the 60s and 70s and the Pixars of the 90s and early 2000s, what's happened now is that we as a audience and certainly as like a, a functioning, breathing consumer we bludgeon that content to death so quickly mm. because it's like no one is not enough and it's not good enough and it must be a franchise and there must be a backstory to everything and we must know that there's going to be a sequel instead of just yeah. going here's a film enjoy it because yeah. no 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 one went oh toy story one i definitely need four more of these they, it was just a good standalone film and instead we're sort of at a point where you can see the producers like sort of um deers in the headlights going oh how do we make this into three films mm. yeah i mean tolkien's a perfect example of that the hobbit films did not need to be three films no. No, when, when you look at how much they left out of the first book the, the lord of the rings books and then they stretch out every every footnote and every kind of like a diagram that tolkien stuck in the hobbit gets made into part of the film because they just just wanted to stretch it out to three right yeah and that that's the hilarity of it is that the Tolkien estate now have sort of signed over everything except the core story to Amazon now, um, or Apple, whichever one has been signed off to which. But it, it's that sad state of affairs where they're going to pick the, uh, the the remaining bits of flesh off a carcass that has been very much finished with for about five, six years now. Yeah, I don't think I've said this on the pod before, but did you guys know that it takes longer to watch the Hobbit films than it does to read the Hobbit book? You haven't said it, but I believe that's true. I like, believe that hundred percent. And, and I've proved I've proved that it takes probably around seven and a half to eight hours to watch the films. It takes about six to read the book. That's madness. Yeah. That's madness. And there's more it's in bit, the book. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, especially as they missed stuff out of the book. Yeah. It, <laughs> they they add in Evangeline Lilly. They add in all sorts of love like love storylines yeah, nonsense absolutely nonsense yeah Hobbit and Dwarf love stories because that is exactly what everyone wants to see yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're, you're speaking our language about about remakes for sure, Jamie. We 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 rant about well, I'm, them on a regular I'm basis. Slight, I'm slightly scared because I think we're getting to the point where we're going to get to Verhoeven's back catalogue and mm. we're, we're just going to remake everything without the satire and without the pastiche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, tw- a 12A version of Showgirls. That will be the the nadir of it all. Oh, it will be an honest, uh, um, like real life uh, Starship Troopers remake that I'm worried about. Yeah, that's going to be pants. Like Starship Troopers without any of the sarcasm. Yeah, yeah, they just totally missed the point. Essentially, what you and just it, it made. And it will just is... essentially be a pro-fascist film. Yeah, exactly. You've completely <laughs> missed the point. Yeah. The one, so that, the, one, that, yeah. the one thing you haven't touched on from the features you very kindly did for us last, Jamie, was the classics. There's the other thing that we did. Yes. And I thought it'd be a nice thing to just top off with was you. You very kindly nominated a classic, which in our category is a film which is you know is great or everybody tells you is great and. Um, you haven't got around to watching it. Now, yours was uh, There Will Be Blood, and I just wondered out of interest since that conversation whether you've managed to watch it yet. I, I did, and I loved it. Um, I mean, well, Daniel Day-Lewis, in, in and of himself, um, I'm not sure if he'll ever do anything ever again anyway, but um, <laughs> There Will Be Blood was just great fun throughout i know it's become a ridiculous meme of itself um yeah now you know uh, what i drink your milkshake means right yes exactly that um and i was like oh yeah that's what that's from um but i went and read the book as well Uh, i went and read oil um because 
it, it gave a lot of depth and you sort of go oh that's what he was going for i get it um and even even paul dano i thought was great no oh, he's um, terrific he's so he's versatile really as well he just does everything he does everything he so the well Batman film as well yeah he does yes. he's so good he, he, some you know sometimes he'll play these kind of really like like sort of timid characters who can barely kind of say boo to a goose and then he plays a slaver in, in 12 years a slave and he plays quite a scary villain in, in a batman film he's got incredible range the range is ridiculous i think james is quite right he carried the batman film in a big way um which was, was really surprising because I, I i thought that was as close as we got to a good michael keaton style batman film for a long time mm. Yeah, I mean, but you know, the the Michael Keaton Batman's were quite dependent on the villains as well. You need you need yeah. a good you need a good villain in those movies, you know, for the balance. Definitely. But, uh, listen, Jamie, it's been an absolute pleasure. We wish you all the best of luck with I Am Rage and all your future projects. Um, awesome. For, Thank for the you, benefit guys. of the audience, I Am Rage is available on Amazon now. Get it watched. It's it's a, a very enjoyable exploitation film with a with a little wink to the audience, and you get uh, you get to see Jamie doing what the fifth accent you had to go through to kind of settle on something <laughs> for the movie. Uh, let, let's call it an American Midwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it's 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 a lot of fun. I recommend you watch it. Um, We'll we're going to put this out fairly soon for, for for you know so look look out for it Jamie we're you know we're, we're happy to help. Oh, you I, I love the pod and you guys are fantastic and any opportunity to geek out with you guys on some other stuff just drop me a message. Yeah, yeah you're very welcome, Jamie, and we'll we'll reach out. Thank to you very Thanks much. a lot. Cheers, mate. Awesome. Cheers, guys. Cheers. See you later, mate. Thanks very much for listening to this special episode of Double Reel. Thanks also to my co-host James Adamson and our special guest Jamie B. Chambers. Jamie's new film I Am Rage is available to rent or buy on Amazon now. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Our next regular episode is in the works and the first part will land on October 25th. Until then, stay safe, watch lots of films and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. Nice, we are, man. Yeah.